How do you feel about that? Yeah, everybody feels really uplifted, really excited about what Scripture is trying to teach you this morning. I mean, you know, we're not much different than animals. We all just come from dirt and we go back to dirt, right? You feel encouraged? Well, Solomon actually in this passage doesn't actually feel very encouraged. So, so let's start to unpack this. So over the past three weeks or so, uh, we've been exploring the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning with kind of two main concepts that help us to understand the teaching that this book actually gives us. This is one of the least taught books uh, from the pulpit in churches today. And you can kind of see why, right? Like it seems like it's such a negative sort of Debbie Downer kind of thing. Um, now, the first concept that the narrator brings to us. So remember, there's, there's two people. There's a narrator and then there is the teacher. So there's two different voices in the text. And so the, the narrator at chapter one essentially gives us a summary or the overarching theme that kind of drives the teacher's conclusions forward. He says that everything is, in our English translations, meaningless, or in the Hebrew, hevel. Now, hevel, the Hebrew word, is translated meaningless or vanities, depending on the translation that you uh, have in your hand or at home or on your phone or wherever it may be, collecting dust. Essentially, it means a vapor, a a mist. Something that we can see, because we see it go up, but then it just kind of disappears, it, it fades away. And when we try to grasp Hevel, when we try to grasp it, our hand just kind of passes right through it. Now this concept is important because when the teacher in Ecclesiastes uses the concept of everything being Hevel, everything being meaningless, he means that life as we know it, we're not able to truly understand or grasp. That, that it's like chasing the wind, that you'll, you'll never catch it. It's impossible to figure everything out. He doesn't mean that life has no meaning. Actually, the teacher would say quite the opposite, that life has actually deep meaning and purpose here on earth. It's just difficult to understand why things happen the way they do in life. Now, because everything is Hevel, the teacher's telling us that we need to think about life more than we currently do. That we need to become aware as we ponder our thoughts on life of who God is and how he is present in every moment of our life. This awareness, it'll help us to find meaning and purpose in the life that we live here on this meaningless earth. Now, the second concept, this is a few weeks ago, so I got to kind of recap some of it. The second concept that we explored in the second week of this sermon series was we walked through an important theme within the book. So we weren't just in one chapter, we walked through a group of themes, actually seven passages within the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes that show us that the teacher is completely convinced through experience and wisdom 
that we are not able to control the outcome of things in this life. That we try, but by getting so caught up in vying for control, we miss the wonderful things that God is doing in our lives and in the world around us. Probably one of the most disagreed upon sermons that I've preached where people are like, no, like planning's good, control is good, I've been vying for it my whole life. And the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he would say, it's Hevel. It's nothing but a facade. You think that you're in control. You think that you can control all the outcomes in your life. How did that go? Are you saturated with joy in the good and the bad moments of life? In all moments, have you found complete peace? Now, I also want you to remember, who is giving us this wisdom? King Solomon is the one that they believe is the teacher. And he's been given the gift of wisdom directly from God. So he's not like just a smart guy. He's actually been given the gift of wisdom from God. He is the most successful king to have ever lived. He has absolutely everything. He has more than the richest person in this room. He had more than the richest person in Simcoe. He has more than the richest person in the world today. He has everything. He's the most successful king, more money than you could ever dream of, more property than you could ever imagine. He literally has everything. He probably owns the Leafs. Power. Wealth, good health. There's nothing that Solomon does not have on this side of life. That is who is speaking to us today. And these are the two concepts that he's given. So this old man is reflecting on the way that he's lived his life and on the meaning of life. And so we need to listen. And his conclusion is the chasing after all these things. Wealth, power, pleasure, knowledge, all the things that we shape life goals around in order to find happiness, he chalks it all up as meaningless. None of it worked. None of it brought happiness. None of it brought him meaning to his life. And none of it will bring us meaning or purpose either. Now, Pastor Tamil explored Solomon's quest for pleasure, wisdom, and finding meaning and hard work. Everything that we've been taught, would, that would, we've been taught literally that would bring us happiness in life. And his conclusion, folks, is it's Hevel. It's something we can't grasp. It's something that we know is there but it's just not attainable. We can't control every outcome in life and we'll drive ourselves to misery if we insist on trying. Money and possessions are not the answer to life's quest for happiness. The teacher concluded that the only place in which any joy can be found is in the little things that God provides. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 
He says, there's nothing better in verse 24 for mortals to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from who can eat or who can, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment. So according to Solomon, the greatest king, the one who's achieved everything we could ever imagine or want to achieve, he's got the greatest RRSP account on the planet. A simple way to find enjoyment in life is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your work. I'm not sure if unions existed. In other words... He's calling us to let go of control and to find life in gathering together with friends and family for a meal together, taking joy in all the hard work that we have done and how God has enabled us to live today. This meal, I talked about this, the act of eating, it represents our deep need for God. This is why we uh, have this Christian tradition about praying before a meal, that we give thanks for God because it's God who actually provided this meal through things that we can't control. The food in which we eat, it relies and it acts, it relies on acts of God to be produced. So a meal represents our understanding of how big God is and how deep our need is for our Creator. And so joy can only be truly found in living a life that pleases God. And the starting point is to notice how our God provides for us each and every. And so this brings us into our chapter for today, into chapter three, which you heard read on the screen in the introduction of the sermon. Solomon starts this chapter with with a difficult realization that there's a season for everything. Now, at first glance, one might read this section with, with a positive lens. How many people have heard like the birds song? Anybody even know who that is, right? Where like everything's happy, there's a season for this. Season. I don't even know this song. But anyway, uh, you know, everything's through a positive lens. He's being super positive. But I, that, that's not like even close to the tone of this text. I, I need you to hear that. The teacher is not saying, well, there's a time for this and there's a time for that. Everything is wonderful. Life is good. That's not the tone in this text. He is frustrated with God. He's frustrated with God in this text. The teacher's reflecting on how time affects us as human beings, that we are literally bound by time. Life will be good one day, and it'll be crappy the next day. How many people know this? Some days will be good, some days will be bad, some days will be worse than the bad day, some days will be better than the good day. We're bound by time. We find joy in some moments and disaster in the next. The past becomes the present and the present moves us into the future. Sounds about right, right? 
This, there's a time for everything, the good times and the bad. Notice how he jumps in the text from good to bad, from bad to good, back and forth in the text. He's doing that on purpose. But today, we're not going to dig too deep into the, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to do this, and a time to do that. I could do a sermon just in that alone. There's something more important, actually, in this text that I want to point out today. Like I said, Solomon's not happy in this text. He's frustrated, so hear that tone. He's frustrated with the fact that we as human beings have been enslaved by time. That God has actually made us aware of our enslavement to time, and it haunts us in every day of our life. Let me show you where I get this from. I hope some of you brought your Bibles. If you didn't, that's cool. It's going to come up on the screen. But let's jump to verse 9 of chapter 3. Listen to what verse 9 says. We'll go from 9 to 11. What gain have the workers from their toil, which is a fancy word for working, their, their labor? I have seen the busyness that God has given everyone to be busy with. He's made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, there are some key interpretive issues in this text, so I hope most of you read more than one version of the Bible. Because we have to do interpretive work uh, in the text unless you know the original languages. And even when you know the original languages, if you're not actually Hebrew or Greek, like you're interpreting something, right? So today, I'm actually choosing to use a more literal version of the scriptures. So literal means that it's, it's, uh, they're attempting the best that they can to get it as close to the original language as possible. And the reason that I'm doing this is because we need to strip away the interpretive struggles that we see in the original languages. And and so you might notice in like the New Living Translation and the New International Version, it reads very differently than the translation that I just read to you. For instance, the New Living Translation says this, what do people really get for all their hard work? Now, he says, I've seen the burden God has placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity into human hearts, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So he says, I've seen the burden. Well, what is the burden that he's seeing? Well, in the more literal version that I'm reading from, it actually helps us with that. The burden that he's seeing is busyness. Because in this text, it says, I've seen the busyness that God has given to everyone to be busy with. That's a great literal interpretation of the text. Solomon is lamenting about how, because of our awareness of time, we spend all of it being busy with things that are nothing but hevel. Now, notice the New Living Translation even says that we're caught up in our business. God has made everything beautiful. Now, as true as that is, as modern readers, we sometimes read that. We're like, oh, but it's so beautiful. Everything is so wonderful. Like, that's such an uplifting text to quote and pluck out of context. The problem is, 
is that beautiful doesn't really mean like beautiful unless you think that beautiful means order. God has put everything in order. He says he has made everything suitable for its time. Suitable. He's placed order in society. As as true as it is that that is beautiful, in order for us to understand what Solomon is struggling with, this literal translation of suitable helps us better. Because beautiful can become really fluffy. We're suitable and in order. God has placed order in a suitable way in our world, is what the text is actually saying. How many people like order? How many people think order is beautiful? That's what they're trying to convey in the New Living Translation. The problem is, is in today's day and age, not everybody sees order as beautiful. I know all you people who love order are going, that's just out of order. (laughs) You see, time moves on no matter what, though, it's perfectly in order. Then the NLT says that God has planted eternity in the human heart, but we just don't understand the scope of God's work. But notice the more literal text. It says God has put, it doesn't say eternity, it says a sense of past and future into our minds. Now again, eternity is not the wrong word, but in our fluffy Western culture of reading scripture, we read this and say, but it's all good because God has put heaven into our hearts. That's not what the Hebrew text says. The Hebrew text says that God has made us aware of time, that he's made us, he's planted eternity in our hearts by putting a sense of past and future into our minds. And then he says, yet we can't figure out what God has done from beginning to end. So we have this sense of time, but we don't really truly get it. Now, in our more readable translation, sometimes we miss this because we just frankly take some of the depth out of it by trying to help the average reader understand the text but we read it through our North American lens, and so we often miss it. That's why you need like literal translations and non-literal. You need to be reading all of the above, and you need to start asking questions. Solomon, I think I've said this, is frustrated in this text. He's frustrated because God has put this sense of past and future into our hearts. And it's this understanding that causes us to be enslaved by time. We dwell so much on the past that it traps us. And we spend so much time trying to control the future that we miss what God is doing right now. That's what Solomon's frustrated about. He sees these things about humanity. We spend so much time dwelling on the past or so much time seeking the future that we actually miss today. You see, in the text, a time for this and a time for that, but notice we don't seem to have much control over these seasons. They're coming no matter what. We don't dictate what season we are in. So we get stuck in guilt and shame of the past and we live in anxiety about the future. 
This guilt and anxiety are what cause us to be so busy. And Solomon says, it's all hevel. It's hevel because I don't know a single person who's got the ability to change the past. We watch movies about it, right? To travel in time, if I could turn back time, right? Who's that, Cindy Lauper? Yeah? I am 25. Right? Like we sing songs about it, we write movies about it, if I could only do it, but we can't. No one can change the past. The past is the past. We can learn from the past, but we can't change the past. But yet, the past seems to trap us in so many ways. We get stuck in guilt and shame about the past, but yet it's all hevel because we can't change the past. Now, how many people here are really good at predicting the future? I know there's lots of people online that really believe that they can predict the future. Do you know that even the Bible says that Jesus himself doesn't know when the time will come? But apparently there's a few preachers who have figured it out and they wrote books about it. We all ran out and bought it. You know, 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. You see how we, we, we like wallow in the past and then we try to figure out the future. But it's all hevel because we can't control either of those things. Yet, it's exactly what we spend all of our busyness trying to do. This enslavement to time causes us to struggle with our present life. An author, a Christian author named Henry Nouwen says, the real enemy of life are the oughts and the ifs in life. This is so true, isn't it? My headset's driving me crazy. Anyway, it's like getting caught on the back of my chair and then like pulling my head back every time I lean forward. So if I look annoyed, it's not at you. (laughs) It's at the wire running down my back. Anyway, I wish I would have done this, right? Anybody ever said that? I wish I should have, could have, would have. Or if I had only done this, Like we go on and on and on and yet we get stuck and then we think I ought to do this. That will solve my problem. That will bring me joy. Yet, none of it does. We get stuck in the guilt of the past and the anxiety of the future. And this is exactly what frustrates the teacher. He's struggling with the question of why would God Do this to humanity. We work hard, and what do we get? We get stuck in our own guilt and our own anxiety because God has made us aware of time. We're aware of it, but we don't understand what God is doing from beginning to end. That's what he says. So we have this awareness but then there's this space of not understanding that we will never truly understand. But, folks, we know something Solomon didn't, don't we? His name is Jesus. 
And who does Jesus say that he is? Well, let's jump to the last chapter of the entire Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 12 to 13. Listen to what Jesus says. These words are in red in your Bible because that's always correct. (laughs) See, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, Solomon's lamenting about us not being able to understand the beginning and the end, and yet we have Jesus who is the beginning and the end. Jesus tells us that he is this thing, the incarnation, his death and resurrection. They help to give us an understanding of the past and the present and the future. And it's an understanding that Solomon only had pieces of. God came and he experienced the burden of time. He experienced the burden of busyness. He came and experienced the burden of the past and our obsession for controlling the future. Even Jesus gives us advice about how to deal with this burden that Solomon is frustrated with. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus says, you ready? So do not worry about what? For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. You see, Jesus is recognizing the human condition here. Today's trouble is enough for today. You can barely just get through today. How do you think you're going to be about controlling the future? Both Jesus and Solomon know that we as human beings, that we worry, we stress, And we have busyness on our minds because we're trying to control everything. And both Solomon and Jesus want us to be free from this burden. So let's jump back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's see the advice. Let's see where Solomon lands on this. So Jesus stopped. He says, just like, don't worry about it. But like, we don't need to listen to Jesus, right? So let's, we just, okay, Jesus isn't good enough. Just living today, okay, no, no, but I need to, like, I gotta worry about it. That's part, just part of who I am. So how does Solomon deal with this? He doesn't have Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses 12 to 15. I know that there is nothing better for them to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it's God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. Some of your translations would say, God has done this so that you will fear the Lord. The the best translation actually, where we translate fear is actually awe. It's like a reverent fear or a reverent awe. That which has already been, he says, that which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. Solomon lands back with the eating thing. It's like all about food to Solomon, right? 
he lands back into understanding that we all have, all we have is actually today. And we can decide what we're gonna do with this moment right now. It's the only thing that we have any sort of form of control over. So he says, so we should eat and we should drink. In other words, we should live and show our dependence on God. Remember I taught you about what eating and drinking actually resembled? This deep dependence on the creator, the one who was giving us what we could eat and drink. And so he's, he's saying our lives need to show our dependence on God right in this moment right now. And while we depend on God for everything, we should put in an honest, hard day's work. And we should take satisfaction in whatever we accomplish in that day. Think about what our whole society is like. Seek pleasure, look for it in money and control and power and all these different things, and then retire, stop working as soon as possible. I think actually, biblically speaking, it's just... I think retirement, what it really is more biblically is like choosing what you're doing in your moment. I don't think you stop working. I think you just now get to choose what you do when you wake up in the morning, right? But if it's like watch TV and do nothing, like scripture actually says a hard day's work is what will bring you joy. So God's made us aware of time so that, the scriptures say, we would be able to stand in awe of him. You see, when we learn and accept that God is bigger than us, and we accept that we can't control all things, that there's something bigger, that there's something, things that we just don't know, that we just can't figure out, that we don't know uh, everything about the beginning and the end, although we know more than Solomon did, it creates this awe, the scriptures say. Here, here's part of the challenge. Today, we're aweless when it comes to God. Because if we were truly in awe of God, every moment would be about him. But instead, we're wallowing in the past and we're seeking the future. And we miss the fear of the Lord. We miss the awe. The awe, folks, is what drives us to our place of trust in the creator of the heavens and the earth. Without the awe, you will lack trust. Now, let's jump to verse 22 in chapter 3 to hear Solomon's final conclusion. He says, So I saw that there's nothing better than all should enjoy their work. For that is their lot. Who can bring them to see what will be after them? You see, to Solomon, our lot in life is to enjoy our work. The reason for this is simple, because we can't do anything about anything else. He says, uh, who can see what is after them? In other words, what he's literally saying here is, who can see the future? You can't. No one but God himself. Even Jesus said that it wasn't for him to know, that it was for God the Father alone. 
So according to Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, he says that we need to learn to live today in the here and in the now, not dwell in the past or the future. Dwelling on the past or the future will only drive you deeper into frustration because we're not capable of knowing what God knows. And we have Jesus who gives us more understanding than what Solomon had. And listen to how Jesus guides us about living here on earth. Let's go back to that verse that, where he told us not to worry, and let's look at what he says above that. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, listen very carefully to what Jesus is teaching you folks. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Whatever you choose in this moment to be your priority is where the desire of your heart will be in that moment. In awe of God or wallowing in past and seeking future and control? And Solomon's saying, live in the awe of God in every moment. Listen to what Jesus says. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store foods in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. There's that dependence on Jesus, on God, right? And aren't you far more vulnerable to him than they are? Valuable, sorry. Let's go with vulnerable and valuable. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing Look at all the lilies in the field and how they grow. They don't worry or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about the teacher, Solomon? And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith. So don't worry about these things. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above else. Seek the kingdom of God, folks, in every moment of your life. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. 
So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. When we live in the guilt of the past, and we obsess over creating the future we think will bring us happiness, we miss our moment today. And it's in this moment that God wants to be with you. This is why Jesus says, let it go. Don't worry about it. Scripture calls us to live our lives. You hear me say this all the time, right? Live a Christocentric life. Live your life. Live each moment centered in Jesus Christ. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who has lived and experienced everything we struggle with. It's not like God is saying, I think I know what it might be like to be you. God literally became us and knows absolutely everything right to the point of an agonizing, torture-filled death. Only God knows the past and the future. Only God forgives And is encouraging us to live in awe of him. Because one day all the worries of humanity will be gone. We'll live with Jesus in a perfect new city where sin and death and pain no longer exist. So today we're called to live life in Christ, to seek first, not second, not third, not last, not eventually, not I'll get there by Wednesday, but to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, a life in Christ means this, folks. You ready for it? I'm going to tell you what a Christocentric life actually means according to Jesus Christ. That we wake up, we thank God that we just woke up because it's not by our doing, right? That we wake up and we serve. That we wake up and we serve others. That we wake up and we love others. That we live an others-centered day. Because the thing that keeps us stuck in the past and constantly vying for the future is actually self-centeredness. And the only way to break self-centeredness is to serve. You see, when you're being served, you will remain self-centered. But when you're serving, some of that self-centeredness strips away. What did Jesus do his entire time here on earth? He loved and he served. I was watching uh, that popular Christian show, The Chosen, I think it's called, the app that people watch. And they've done a really good job at uh, taking us behind the scenes of some of the characters in scripture that we know very little about, actually. But scholars know a little bit more, right, through studying things around the text and so on. One of the episodes that I was watching, the disciples were all back at camp and Jesus was out teaching and healing. 
And he was teaching and healing and teaching and healing and teaching and healing. And the disciples are taking shifts going back and forth. And they're like, is he done yet? He's been going all day. Like, is he done yet? Is he done? And they're back at the fire. And they begin to argue with Matthew because nobody likes Matthew because Matthew was a tax collector. And so they begin to argue with him. And they're, they're getting in a heated argument. So Jesus, he's out serving, right? He's out healing and... And then all of a sudden, the picture changes, and Jesus staggers by completely exhausted, barely able to stand. And they just go silent. And I thought to myself, that's it. That's it. You see, as we human beings are sitting around the fire arguing with the tax collector, you know, trying to get our rights back and trying to do this and trying to do that and whatever the heck we argue about today, because it's everything. Jesus is serving to the point of exhaustion. He just serves. He just gives. He forgives. He heals. That's what he wants us to focus our moment on. That's how we live a Christocentric life. I want to just take a moment. I know Pastor Tamil played this video a couple weeks ago, but I can't help but stress the importance of these words. I worked in the inner city in Hamilton amongst uh, addiction and homelessness and literally people living out of dumpsters and society has completely written them off. I'm sure you've all said horrible things about them. You know, get a job, all that kind of stuff, right? But everybody has a story. Everybody has a past and everybody's got a future. And everybody also has a right now. I think it's more Jesus-centric if in the right now, we help the person out of the dumpster rather than judge the person in the dumpster. And so this prayer, it's called the serenity prayer, was a prayer that we would open with in the rehab program every single morning. And it was a prayer that they would actually live by. And I actually think there's something about uh, successful recovery that even non-addicted people need to learn because I don't think non-addicted people actually live in Western culture. I think we're all addicted. It's just that our society has deemed certain things okay and other things not okay. So we're, we're really a bunch of addicts who need to reflect on this prayer. And so will you just, just read the words and just spend a moment to reflect and then we'll bring things to a close. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things that should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. 
accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right. If I surrender to your will. So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. My very first sermon. Pointed out something that was actually really important, and you've probably long forgotten. I said there's two kind of ways to approach how we go about living our Christian life. We can read scripture and we can approach our relationship with Jesus as what can God do for me? Right? Lord, what are you doing for me? Are you checking off my checklist? Are you, you know, what can I get from my salvation? And unfortunately that, we deem the prosperity gospel about money alone. But the prosperity gospel is not actually just about money. The prosperity gospel is about how we look at our relationship with God. And so we can read scripture, we can approach our faith in a way of, God, what are you doing for me today? And then we end up disappointed because God didn't do what we wanted him to do for us today. And then we make all kinds of false promises, even from the front. And people end up frustrated with God, angry with God. Or we can read the Bible through the lens of scriptures moving us toward a wisdom, not a knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are different. We, we tend to interlink them together. But what if scripture's moving us into a place of maturity and wisdom in this life so that we can live our lives in awe of the creator of the heavens and the earth? So instead of saying, God, what are you doing for me today? It's, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you today. There's a distinct difference, and I think throughout this COVID era, one difference has dominated over the other. The Barna Group, which is an American uh, statistic, Christian statistic thing. This is the United States. 36% of Christians are returning to church. That's it. 22% of those Christians are angry with their lead pastor because of decisions that they made throughout the pandemic. As scary as all of that is, none of that surprises me. Because I think that we've taken on a posture of, God, what can you do for me? How can I be entertained? How can the church entertain me? How can I be free in my life to do what I want? Da, 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 whatever it is. How can I find future 
knowledge, like, you know, because we're all trying to predict the future or we're wallowing in the past. And that, that it's all like fitting God into that instead of God just being who we serve. And I think that COVID brought that out, folks. I think COVID-19 has shown us that we, think about we, sorry, think about me. Even the best of us. And that God is calling us back through wisdom and awe, trying to mature you to say, serve one another, love one another, be my hands and feet in a broken world that's all about self. That's what I want my church to be. Everything else is hevel. It's chasing after the wind. And so I think the church has a decision to make in this moment. What are your priorities? What God are you serving? And how are you going about serving that God? I want to encourage you, and I'm going to pray for you in a moment. This this isn't about church attendance. It's not my point. My point is, is that, like, we're just so caught up in everything else that we're forgetting the things that actually matter. We think we lost this and that, and so we're striving to get it back, and we're blaming everybody for taking it away. Meanwhile, God has always existed, always will be. He's never changed. He's been the same this whole time. And he's experienced it all. So we have to decide in this moment, what God are we going to serve? What is our life going to look like? Not 20 minutes from now, but right now. Father, we live in a society in North America that is one of the most medicated societies in the world. And Lord, we know that not all medication is bad, that you created our ability to think and to weave through some of these things. And so some of it, some of it is very good. It's very helpful. But we also know that our anxieties and our fears and our stress, a lot of the things that often lead us in that direction, Lord, are actually just a product of our deep need to control something that we can't control. And so, Lord, you placed your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And it was Acts chapter 2 that you revealed to the disciples who really still didn't get it who you truly are that you want to live with them, that you want to live in them, that you want to motivate them and move them in an awestruck way to live their lives for you. And so, Lord, I pray 
with the Holy Spirit living in those who have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior, that that spirit would begin stirring our hearts and we would begin to pay attention again. That we wouldn't let the enemy pull us away into all the theories and different stuff that we would focus our hearts and our minds on where our hearts and minds were created from in the first place, which is rooted in Jesus. Lord, we need your help more than ever right now to just get rid of the noise and to just hear your voice, your spirit. Help us, Lord, to have a servant heart, to love the unlovable, to care for for those we may actually see as our enemies, and reorient the mindset of the church to serve you, to profess you as our Lord, not just a passing whim that we take in on a Wednesday or a Sunday or a Tuesday, or whenever we get to it. Lord, center our hearts and our minds in awe of you. So as we go today, we're going to mess up. We're going to do all kinds of silly, self-centered things. But I pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue to draw us back into your presence to bring the peace and comfort that only your Holy Spirit can bring. And I pray that we are able to affect the world by living our lives centered on you. So help us, O Lord, to live the the life that you've called us to live in this moment, in this time. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We have talk it over questions and all kinds of different stuff. Like you don't have to move. Like Sunday can be every day. Like this is the launching pad into growth, right? And so I want to encourage you folks, go to our website. Like Pastor Tamil's prepared talk it over questions. Uh, you know, and like actually talk it over. Talk it over with your spouse. Talk it over at coffee with your neighbor. Um, COVID hasn't stopped us from being able to talk. Maybe we just need to talk it over with Jesus. But move from a message that Scripture gives into a life that Scripture calls us to live. So may the Lord bless you today, and may you find joy in each and every moment. And thank you for showing up to church. May the Lord bless you.